In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." I remember when I was in college, I took a class called Lives of Great Preachers. And it was kind of amazing to see the grace of God work so powerfully through these different men as they surrendered to God for His purposes in ministry. A few of them that stand out, one of them was John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, is what he's most famously known for. John Bunyan preached the gospel and it got him in a lot of trouble. He ended up spending a large number of years of his life in prison. They put him there to silence him, but it didn't work. <laughs> While John Bunyan was in prison, he wrote 66 books on, on the Christian faith, Pilgrim's Progress being one of them. And it's amazing to see how God uses individuals, use them not in the greatest of circumstances, because he's sitting there in prison, and he said, well, if, you can't, if I'm not going to be able to preach to people, I'm going to write to them. And so he, he wrote all these books encouraging people in their faith. They ridiculed him. Said that his writings would never last. They would soon fall into oblivion. But he outlasted the writings of his critics, as a matter of fact. And this is a guy that they said could spell a four-letter word three different ways. And so he didn't have the greatest, you know, he's always misspelling things. But you know, there's the grace of God. Here's a guy that could spell a four-letter word three different ways, and we're still reading his writings. More currently, Billy Graham. I did some reading on him for a little bit too, just because I was curious because he was more contemporary, and that was really interesting. You realize that Billy Graham has spoken to millions of people and saw I don't know how many people walk the aisles to come down and receive Christ. And But reading his biography was, was very interesting. You realize Billy Graham's education was in anthropology. You know who had the theology degree? Ruth, his wife. God used Billy to, to, to reach many, many, many people. I think of people like uh, Billy, Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday speaking during a time when in our American history we had a serious problem with alcohol abuse. And he addressed that issue a lot. And because of that, his life was threatened on many occasions by saloon owners and things like that. And, but Billy Sunday, they said that when he left town, the town was better off for it. He would go and hold a revival in a town for days or weeks usually. And they said when he left, kids were dressed better. They were eating better uh, because more of that money was staying home. The banks actually flourished because because paychecks were being stuck in the bank rather than blown in the tavern. And, and uh, just what an impact he made uh, during his time. John R. Rice, he's the guy that started the, the publication, The Sword of the Lord. At times, he borrowed money personally to make that publication happen that reached a lot of people. And he would hold revivals, and sometimes when he would leave a, a community, he would leave behind, after having a revival, a church of two to 300 people that had been started because of and during that revival. It's just really neat to read the biographies 
of these different people and how God used them. And all of them had some strengths. All of them had some weaknesses. Well, the reason that I point that out is because uh, Ephesians in chapter 2 is doing that with our lives at this moment. In the first seven verses there, actually up through verse 10, is dealing with what we would call the biography of a Christian. He just gives the details of our life. What it was yesterday, what it is today, what it is tomorrow. He's laying out this life that we have in Christ. And it's a big contrast. You know, when I first came to the passage, I thought, where do I break it up? Do I break it up? Do I do the whole ten verses? That would be very difficult. To be honest, you'd probably be here quite a while if we do it the whole ten verses. There's just a lot in there. There's a lot in the first three verses. You could spend the whole time in, in those three verses. And it kind of breaks down easily into a three-point outline too. But the problem is, if you only focus on the first three verses, you're really missing the main point. The first three verses are given to point to the next four verses. It's a contrast. He starts off by contrasting, saying, look, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but you were made alive in Christ It contrasts what we have in our sins being dead and in Christ being alive. In fact, in the first three verses of this passage, the phrase in Christ, which we've noticed is showing up over and over and over, it does not show up at all in the first three verses. That's our life outside of Christ, before Christ. But you know what? In the next four verses, the phrase in Christ is mentioned six times. And so it's contrasting what we had before Christ and what we have in Christ. It contrasts death with life. And it also contrasts what we are by nature because it says in verse 3, we are by nature children of wrath and what we have by grace. Because in verse 4, it starts with grace. Or maybe I should say continues with grace because he's already highlighted it a little bit in chapter 1. But it's contrasting those things, what we are by nature, what we are by grace. And so we're looking at these seven verses and what they outline for us is the biography of a believer, the rough outline of the life of a believer, and it applies to every one of us. Well, first, we're going to see in verses 1 through 3, as I mentioned, we see this is what my life was yesterday. Because he's writing to people that have put their faith in Christ. And so he's able to say, look, this is what you were. All that's changed now because you put your faith in Christ, but this is, this is your past. This is what you were. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, then this is still your present. But if you're a believer, this is your past. Well, as we look through this passage and see what is that experience, first of all, we notice in verse 1, he highlights that we were dead. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now, what is he talking about? Obviously, these people aren't physically dead because they're, he's writing to them. He's saying they're still very much alive. Death is kind of covered three ways in the Bible. We experience death physically. We experience death spiritually. And if something doesn't change in that, we experience death eternally. Adam and Eve were told back in the Garden of Eden that the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. And we recognize that they did not die physically that day. Something else died in their place But they were under the mercy and grace of God. He had mercy on them and allowed the innocent to die for the guilty to provide a covering for their guilt. But they would begin to die physically. But you know what? They did die spiritually that day. After God went and found them in the garden and called them on the carpet and handed out the curse, He kicked them out of the garden. They were expelled from the garden and we've been outside the garden ever since. Under the curse of God. Under the wrath of God. 
And so we have that, that death is exactly that. The spiritual death is a separation from God. Life is being one with God, united with God. Death is being separated from God. And that's what happened to Adam and Eve that day. And he reminds them that actually coming up in, a little bit farther into chapter 2, he reminds the Ephesians again of that separation. In chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. He says, look, you were, you were separated from God. You were alienated from, from Him. You were not part of the covenant. That's what spiritual death is. A, a physical death is a separation of my spirit, my soul, from my body. We read about that in like Genesis chapter 35 and verse 18. It says, and it came to pass as her spirit was departing because she died. Our spiritual death is a separation of our spirit from God. And that's what he's dealing with here. He says, look, in your past, before you believed in Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Hamartia, that's translated sin there, just means to miss the mark, to come up, to come up short. To, to, to not make what's required. I think we all understand that we've missed the mark. But what we always don't recognize is that there's a price for that and the price is huge. The price is death. Remember, Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden for eating the wrong piece of fruit. One act of sin, one act of rebellion separates them from a holy God. Israel had this ingrained in them. Because when you think about the sacrifices, the sacrifice is really communicating a couple of messages. We usually focus on one of them. One of the messages of the sacrifice is the innocent dies for the guilty. The innocent dies for the guilty. The innocent dies for the guilty. The Israelites saw millions of the innocent dying for the guilty, which should have pointed them to Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross. But you know what else the sacrifice speaks of? Sin brings death. Sin brings death. Sin brings death. The price for sin was always death. It should have been ingrained in them that also, that sin, the outcome of that is always death. And that's what he's pointing out to them is, look, you have missed the mark and the, and the price for that is huge. It is death. You're dead in your sin. To miss the mark, over the last few years, I've gotten into bow hunting and I, and I thoroughly enjoy it. I love even just to go out and practice. A couple of years ago, um, I took this picture. And I'd like to point out one thing about this picture. Well, maybe a couple of things. First of all, you know what you see when you see that picture? I missed. There's five arrows in that picture, and I missed every one of them. Now, I was actually kind of proud of this. Because all the five arrows are pretty close together. If I could have just got them to move all to the right a little bit, but they weren't listening. They're off the mark. Where's the, where's the mark? What we're shooting for, what I'm shooting for is right there. That little X right in the middle. I took a picture of it because I got them all within the big black circle. But you know what? There's several circles inside that black circle and I'm not in all those. But the point is, even with that, I think that that is pretty good shooting. But the fact of the matter is I missed on all five shots. Now, here's the deal. There's a whole lot more shots that I have taken that I didn't take any pictures of because I'm not really interested in remembering those. There's other shots that I was frustrated with that I blew completely missed the entire target. You know what? That's how it is in life, isn't it? What is perfection? What is righteousness? What is holiness? The holiness of God is that little X in the middle. And we're not hitting it. Some days we feel like we're doing pretty good. 
Some days our arrows are grouped tighter and they're close together. They might not be right on the mark, but they're, they're pretty close, we feel like. And some days we feel like we're doing pretty good. Even in those days, we're still not on the mark. We've still missed the mark. And not only that, but we all know that we all have a host of arrows that we don't want any pictures taken of. That we don't want to remember. Shots that didn't even, that didn't even come close. And that's what the Bible's telling us that, look, this is your, this was your past. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, thankfully, keep that in mind. We're not focusing just on the sin. We're looking forward to the contrast. This isn't your life anymore. This isn't your experience today. This is your life yesterday. This is what you, you were. Now, why is it important for us to remember what we were? Because we need to recognize the grace of God that's in our life. What God has done for us. We need to recognize the, the mercy that He had for us, the immeasurable grace and the love that He had for us and the kindness that He bestows upon us. And that is seen greatly because of the contrast of what we were in in our death before. I like my pickup. It's a, it's been a good work truck. It's a diesel. It's strong. Now it's getting old. It's, it's starting to rust. I've been having a little bit of trouble with transmission lately. Still pulls strong, does everything good, but when I slow down, if I don't wait long enough, the transmission doesn't shift soon enough. So when you go to step on the gas, it doesn't go anywhere. You gotta let off the gas, wait a second, and then it goes fine. Not too long ago, I got to ride in a nice shiny new truck. My truck didn't seem so good. <laughs> Why? Because of comparison. Because of the contrast between what my truck is now and maybe what it was when it was new. That's the point. Is That's what God is doing for us here in the, with the contrast. Sometimes we get, we get so comfortable with what our life was or we don't recognize the tremendous grace that God has poured into our life. And that's what He's doing with these people. He's saying, look, this is what your life was yesterday. This is what God saved you out of. The first thing He saved you out of is that death. My life yesterday was dead. Not only were we dead, we were disobedient. We were disobedient. And I love the way the, the Apostle Paul includes himself in all of this as well. You realize he starts off the passage talking uh, about you. He, that's the way he refers to these people. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and your sins. But then very shortly, in verse, by the time we get to verse 3, he says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. But look at verse 2. It says, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's saying, look, that's the life that you used to live. You used to walk in that same course. And he uses a few different words. We walked in it. We lived in it. We followed it. And he says, you followed the course of this world. What is the course of this world? There's lots of different philosophies that people go by in this world. But basically, the general idea of the course of this world is a world that is just going about its business and leaving God out of it. It's a life that's lived separate from Christ. That's the course of this world. In fact, even within our world today, I know reading uh, John MacArthur's commentary, he pointed out those are three different philosophies of the world that are prominent today. He pointed out humanism. It's, it's basically looking at the life of people aside from God, without God. He also talked about uh, materialism, elevating possessions to be the most important thing in life. He talked about the unbridled sexuality. He says sex seems to be selling everything in our society. And there's so much push for tolerating every type of sexual perversion that you can think of. And I would put that in the hedonism uh, category. Hedonism is a, is a pursuit of pleasure 
above all things, which, which ironically, you run into what they call the, the pleasure paradox. You know what, if you're seeking after pleasure, it's like I've said many times about happiness, if you're seeking after pleasure, you're not going to find it. We talk about the pursuit of happiness. Happiness is a byproduct of doing the right thing. Right? It's the same. I always had problems with the self-esteem movement because as long as you're trying to find self-esteem, it's going to evade you. Self-esteem is what just happens when you make the right decisions and go the right directions. It's a product of something. It's not an object in itself. But he's, he's pointed out that these three things, I think we need to add one because in our day with all the focus on the environment, naturalism is a big part of the philosophy of our day and our age. You know what all these things have in common is they leave God out. And that's the way the course of this world is. And the fact of the matter is, I look at my life before Christ and that's what I did. I left God out. I'm not saying there, there wasn't a hint of religion here or there. But the fact of the matter was, is until my heart yielded to Jesus Christ, until I placed my faith in Him, I was calling the shots. I was living my own direction, going my own way. Actually, maybe I should rephrase that. It really wasn't my way because I was just following just like the passage says. You know, we often think that we're calling our own shots. We're not. Because he says that we're following the course of this world. In other words, you ever ever notice that when you're going your own way, when you're making your own decisions... There's a lot of other people making the same decisions just like you are. You're not really doing anything new. You're basically following still. I remember, I remember back when I was in high school, the punk rock thing came out. And you have these people who start drunk, dressing up punk rock and that kind of stuff. Not so much in my school because we were a small country school, but, but in, in uh, bigger towns and stuff like that, you'd see it here and there. There's all these people working on being so different. I think back to the, the hippie movement and all that kind of stuff. And what do you got? You got all these people being different. But do you ever notice they're always being different together? They always look just like the rest of the crowd that they're hanging out with? I used to laugh about that even as a teenager. I'd say, hey, let's be different together. You're just following. It's kind of like that old Bob Dylan song. You've got to serve somebody. It's either going to be the devil or it's going to be the Lord, but but you're going to have to serve somebody. When you think, you know what, I'm going I'm to do it my own way. Well, you know what, that's not an uncommon thought. A lot of people are stepping out, trying to do it their own way. You're just following that same spirit, that same mindset. And he says there's something deeper than that. It's not just the way of the world. It's the way of Satan, actually, because it's the prince of the power of the air that you're following. You're not, being, you're not being wise by leaving Christ out of your life, by not submitting to the authority of God in your life. You're being foolish. You're being misled. You're being deceived. And you're not the only one doing it. But not only are we disobedient... We were also doomed. And that's because in verse 3, it talks about what we were by nature. It says we were by nature the children of wrath. It says we're carrying out, we're acting in consistency with that because we give in to the desires of our flesh. Some of those come from the desires right within our own body, physical desires. Some of those are desires of the mind, things that we deal with there. We were given into it. And why were we given into it? Because it was our nature to give into it. Is because we are dead in that sin. We are disobedient because of that. We're doomed. We, he says we are children of wrath. Now this idea of this being a child of wrath has a whole context that goes with that. We find it predominantly when we get to the book of Revelation. There's, there's hints of it before. John the Baptist even talked about it. When the Pharisees and the religious leaders came to, to his baptism, he said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He recognized that there was a coming day of wrath. Jesus also announced the day of wrath. They talked about um, whoever wasn't uh, believing in the Son or in the Son would experience the wrath of God. But you really see it, what they're talking about, get an understanding of it when you get to the book of Revelation. 
in Revelation chapter 6 and verses 15 through 17, it says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? In Revelation chapter 6, you're seeing the conclusion of the opening of the seals on the scroll in the book of Revelation. When it's finally opened, here it is. It's the day of the Lord, which is a day of wrath. Well, we continue through the book of Revelation as he follows through that time of wrath. Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 11 says, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. And then chapter 15 and verse 1 says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. In chapter 15, verse 7, it says, Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Chapter 16, verse 1, Then I heard the loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Chapter 16, verse 19, The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. Revelation 19, 15, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So we see a wrath is something that's coming. Ephesians says you were children of wrath. In other words, that was your destiny. Except for the fact that chapter 1 points out that we've been predestined to escape it because of the grace of God. So God is going to pour out His wrath on unbelieving mankind. We were children of wrath before putting our faith in Christ, but that is exactly what He delivers us from. In fact, in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, He says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Later in that same book, in chapter 5 and verse 9, it says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The whole point is, what did we have before Christ? We were doomed. We were doomed to the wrath of God because of our sin, because of our desires, because of our appetites that we fulfilled. We were doomed, but God did not destine you for wrath. He delivered you from that wrath. He's telling the Ephesians the same thing. You were children of wrath. And then right now is where that conjunction comes in. But but something changed. And what changed? In Christ. And so that's why my life today is different than my life was yesterday. My, my life yesterday was death. My life yesterday was disobedience. My life yesterday I was doomed. But Christian, our life today is very different. 
we're delivered. What does he say as we begin in verse 4? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then I want to skip down for just a few minutes. Let's look down into verse 7. It says, So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace. So you notice what he points out three things here as well. Because He's rich in mercy. It talks about the greatness of His love. And it talks about the immeasurable riches of His grace. That God gives us these things. Because of His mercy, because of His love, because of His grace, we experience life. You know, in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. John has a lot of focus on that, on that life. John chapter 3 and verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John chapter 6 and verse 40, For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. In fact, John summarizes his entire Gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. He says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we live that contrast. That word, there's only three letters, but that is a very big word. Because it says we were dead, disobedient, doomed, but God, because of His rich mercy, His great love, His immeasurable grace, we have life. In fact, there's three things that he mentions here too. There's three verbs. The main one, the prominent verb, is the first one, is that we're alive. He made us alive together with Christ in verse 5. And then in verse 6, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. And so God, because of His mercy, love, and grace, He made us alive, He raised us up, and He has seated us in the heavenly places with Christ. We're as good as there. And He did that, why? Because of His grace. That's what we're saved by. And then, my life tomorrow is found in verse 7. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. When you think about it, it's kind of like what we already talked about with the Holy Spirit. God gave us the Holy Spirit to indwell us as a deposit. Remember that? Guaranteeing more to come. In other words, this is just the tip of the iceberg in our experience with God is this Holy Spirit. Much more to come later. But now He's saying the same thing about grace. He's, he's already done so much of for us through His grace. But He says this is just the beginning. It's not, you're not just saved right now from this grace. Going on from here, on into the future, through the coming ages, beyond the age that we're in right now, we are going to be like trophies of God's grace. God is just going to continue to pour His grace out upon us in a way that's just not even measurable, He said. Our whole eternity is going to be experiencing the immeasurable greatness of God's grace. And I like the way that he expresses it. How is it expressed? In kindness. That's really kind of what grace is. is God's kind disposition towards us who don't deserve it. 
Yeah, that's what we're going to experience throughout the ages. It's just going to be an overflow of the kindness and goodness of God into our lives. Well, he has one more thing that he's going to bring up in this passage, but it's in the part we haven't read yet, and there's too much there to continue on into it here this morning. But I'll tell you this, it deals with what is my life every day. You see, if my life was in death, but my life now is alive. If I was disobedient, but I'm obviously not anymore. If I was doomed, and I'm not anymore, then what is my life every day? on a daily basis and that's what he gets into in verses 8 through 10. So in a in a couple of weeks we'll pick up where we left off here and go through a deeper understanding of the grace of God in our lives.